Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and Documentary Educational Resources. This special project is supported by the Democracy Fund and by the Humankind Program Fund. How America's hyper-partisanship has politicized our courts. You're listening to a Humankind special, Judicial Independence. I'm David Freudberg. These are full-on wars now about who's going to be on the court. The stakes are so high, it's full-on warfare. The ideal of impartial judges is a fundamental American value of fair play. But that standard was put to the test in April 2020. In the frightening first weeks of the novel coronavirus outbreak in the United States, Wisconsin citizens faced a dilemma. They could participate in our democracy by lining up to vote in the presidential primary. But in the process, they might risk catching the highly contagious virus, which had begun to overload the nation's hospitals and morgues. I'm very unhappy with what the Supreme Court, I think we should have delayed the primary, given that we have a stay-at-home order. Henny Renier in Madison served as a volunteer poll worker. She wore a face mask during a long day. I'm over 60, and that irritates me that we're putting ourselves at risk to come and exercise our civic duties, and I just think that's wrong. Two federal courts had extended absentee voting by a week to allow citizens to cast ballots safely by mail. But the Republican Party then asked the U.S. Supreme Court to block the extension because it, quote, undermines the integrity of the election. By a one-vote margin, the court sided with the Republicans, so as to avoid altering election rules at the last minute. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Washington Post. This is the kind of case that really gives the Supreme Court nightmares. I mean, even the title of it was Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee. Uh, It's (laughs) just the kind of... uh, political decision that the court hates to make, and it was also brought as an emergency. And for Wisconsinites who live in a closely watched swing state, their right to vote hung in the balance. It all had to be decided very quickly without oral arguments, uh, just the briefs submitted by the parties. The court uh, does have a long-standing proposition that it doesn't like to get involved in elections, you know, just before uh, they occurred. In her dissent, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg observed that to invoke that tradition during a pandemic boggles the mind, in her words. 
And while our judiciary ostensibly is neutral, the ruling gave the impression of a politically partisan court. It breaks down along their familiar ideological divides, the five conservatives uh, who were nominated by Republican presidents uh, voted one way. The four liberals, all nominated by Democratic presidents, uh, went the other way. And Justice Ginsburg had predicted the previous year that five to four decisions would happen more frequently on the divided court. Carl Hulse is chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confirmation Bias, the tale of how combat over who's appointed to the Supreme Court has grown so fierce. Because of what's at stake in terms of what the courts have to decide now, immigration, health care, voting rights, environmental issues, just these really, really big hot-button issues that uh, people are going to you know, fight for their side, and that means either trying to get their preferred nominee on or the nominee of the other party off. And you don't really do that with kid gloves. But the judiciary should be insulated from our volatile and fractious politics, or so the founders of the United States intended. The complete independence of the courts, wrote Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, is particularly essential in a limited constitution. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts. Our role is very clear. We are to interpret the Constitution and laws of the United States and ensure that the political branches act within them. That job obviously requires independence from the political branches. So while members of the Supreme Court are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, their role in our system is to serve as even-handed arbiters of the law above the fray, not politicians in robes. Justice Elena Kagan. It's an incredibly important thing for the court to guard is, is, is this reputation of, um, of being fair, of being impartial, of being neutral, and of not being simply an extension of the terribly polarized political process and environment that we live in. In recent years, public approval of the Supreme Court has at times broken down sharply along party lines. But according to a recent Gallup survey, almost equal majorities of Democrats, Republicans, and independents now approve of today's court, perhaps attributable to several centrist rulings in high-profile cases. We don't have an army and we don't have uh, any money, and the only way we get people to do what we say that they should do is because people respect us and respect our fairness. And uh, I think especially in this time where the rest of the political environment is so divided, every single one of us has an obligation to think about what it is that provides the court with its legitimacy and uh, has, you know, to think about how we can be not so politically divided as some of the other political institutions in the nation. In November 2018, President Trump denounced a federal judge as an Obama judge. 
it prompted Chief Justice Roberts to issue a statement that we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. The independent judiciary is something we should all be thankful for. In theory, uh, Justice Roberts is correct that the judiciary is, is not designed to be a political body in the sense of, of the legislature or the executive. Leah Ward Sears served as chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, retiring in 2009. And it certainly was never designed to be, as part of our democracy, to be a, a partisan political body. But I think... To be perfectly frank, uh, there's a, some partisanship appears to have snuck in to the Supreme Court, and I think it's undermining the, uh, the trust and confidence that people have in the court right now. Of course, controversy has swirled around the high court throughout much of its history. In 1937, just two years after the Supreme Court building was completed, Rumors started to surface about Justice Hugo Black, a native of Alabama who'd been appointed by President Franklin Roosevelt. It was alleged that Black, a former senator, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, the white supremacist organization. He addressed the nation by radio. The insinuations of racial and religious intolerance made concerning me are based on the fact that I joined the Ku Klux Klan about 15 years ago, I did join the Klan. I later resigned. I never rejoined. Justice Black, who remained on the court till 1971, evolved over the years to become one of the most reliable defenders of civil rights. In that period, the court ruled unanimously to outlaw racial segregation of public schools, landmark 1954 case Brown v. Board of Education. But in recent decades, the Supreme Court has sometimes been extremely divided, and judicial nominees have often become highly charged political targets. It's with great pleasure and deep respect for his extraordinary abilities that I today announce my intention to nominate United States Court of Appeals Judge Robert H. Bork to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Judge Bork is President Ronald Reagan's attempt in 1987 to appoint Judge Bork, considered an ultra-conservative jurist, marked the opening chapter of a contentious era in nomination battles. Many Democrats remembered Bork's role in firing the Watergate prosecutor in what came to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre. On learning of his nomination, Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts promptly took to the Senate floor. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters, and the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. The aggressive pushback against Judge Bork seemed to catch his allies in the Senate unprepared. In subsequent hearings, Judge Bork, a former Yale law professor, defended his judicial philosophy. How should a judge go about finding the law? The only legitimate way, in my opinion, is by attempting to discern what those who made the law intended. The intentions of the lawmakers govern, 
whether the lawmakers are the Congress of the United States enacting a statute, or whether they are those who ratified our Constitution and its various amendments. At issue was the concept of originalism. It's a principle that courts are bound by the language of the Constitution as understood when the framers wrote it. To liberals, that shackles the law to the prejudices of the past. And they argue the meaning of the words in the Constitution was hotly debated even at the time it was written. Carl Hulse of the New York Times. Robert Bork was a person who thought he was much smarter than the Senate Democrats who were trying to block him. And he engaged in a debate with them, and he was someone who was willing to offer his opinions on what's going on with the court, and uh, that turned out to backfire on him. And that's one of the reasons you don't see a lot of uh, nominees now give any kind of opinion. You know, they all try to fall back on the idea, I might have to decide that case sometime. I don't want to say what it's going to do. But, But Robert Bork fought with them. Ultimately, though, Bork fell short of the votes needed for Senate confirmation. It was a bitter pill for his ardent defender, Utah Republican Orrin Hatch. I hope we all think it through what's being done here. Because if we politicize the judiciary of this country, and I don't know how anybody can conclude otherwise, and reject this nominee in the end, let me tell you, we will lose one of the most valued freedoms and liberties and rights to freedom and liberty that this country has, and that's a full, complete, an independent federal judiciary. We're exploring how partisan battles in Washington affect our Supreme Court. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, part of our project Judicial Independence, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. In 1991, Thurgood Marshall retired from the high court after serving 24 years. He was the nation's first black Supreme Court justice. To fill the vacancy, Republican President George H.W. Bush nominated another African-American, Clarence Thomas, a jurist of a far more conservative bent. But the confirmation hearings were rocked when Thomas was accused by a former colleague, Anita Hill, of sexual harassment when they worked together in the early 1980s. During this period at the Department of Education, my working relationship with Judge Thomas was positive. I thought he respected my work and that he trusted my judgment. After approximately three months of working there, he asked me to go out socially with him. Hill, a professor of law now teaching at Brandeis University, graphically described statements made to her by Thomas about his use of pornography and, quote, his own sexual prowess. Finally, he made a comment that I will vividly remember. He said that if I ever told anyone of his behavior that it would ruin his career. This was not an apology, nor was it an explanation. That was his last remark about the possibility of our going out or reference to his behavior. 
the country was electrified by live televised hearings that featured a he said, she said saga involving sex and race. All members of the Senate committee were white males. Judge Thomas flatly denied the accusations. As a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. Do you feel that that was a valid characterization by Justice Thomas? Yes, I do. Leah Ward Sears was the first African-American woman to preside as chief justice of any state when she served on the Georgia Supreme Court. Now, I want to be clear. I don't share his judicial philosophy. We're friends. You know, we're from Savannah, and... Uh, I am friendly with him. I like him very much. I did. I watched that hearing from beginning to end. I did feel like that. Uh, now, in doing that, this, I'm not making a judgment against Anita Hill, who I know, too. Not friendly with her, but I make no judgment about the sexual harassment and all that, because I just don't know. What I don't like is the last-minute pulling out of the hat, uh, even with Kavanaugh. And by the way, I'm a very progressive judge, okay? Kavanaugh or Thomas of these allegations. Now the thing is they involve sex of some type. And with a black man, you know, sexually charged things are pretty sensitive to those of us who are African-Americans. So pulling them out at the, at, the, at the last minute, I thought, was uh, inappropriate. Again, Anita Hill. I have no personal vendetta against Clarence Thomas. But when I was asked by a representative of this committee to report my experience, I felt that I had to tell the truth. I could not keep silent. Mr. Chairman, I am a victim of this process. My name has been harmed. My integrity has been harmed. My character has been harmed. My family has been harmed. My friends have been harmed. There is nothing this committee, this body, or this country can do to give me my good name back. Nothing. I will not provide the rope for my own lynching, or for further humiliation. Republican senators questioned Anita Hill's truthfulness in coming forward years after the alleged events. A second woman with a similar story was subpoenaed to testify, but was never actually called as a witness. Judiciary Chairman Joe Biden cited time constraints. Biden has since acknowledged that Hill deserved a hearing where she was respected. Robert Barnes of The Washington Post. Clarence Thomas is one of the most divisive public officials out there, always will be, um, despite his many, many years on the court. But in many ways, uh, you know, the view of him is locked in that position from 30 years ago.
Stand by, stand by. Uh, CNN right now is moving our earlier declaration of Florida back to the too close to call column. Ah. 25 very big electoral votes in the home state of the governor's brother, Jeb Bush, are hanging in the balance. Election night, November 2000. Vice President Al Gore ran against Texas Governor George W. Bush to succeed the popular president, Bill Clinton. Polls showed them running neck and neck. And in Florida, there were problems with the paper ballots. The tally was so close that it triggered a mandatory recount. On behalf of the State Elections Canvassing Commission, and in accordance with the laws of the state of Florida, I hereby declare... Governor George W. Bush, the winner of Florida's 25 electoral votes for the president of the United States. But the matter landed in the state courts. It was ultimately appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court in a case known as Bush versus Gore. Democrats cried foul when the Supreme Court intervened to halt a state recount. More than a month after the polls closed, the justices selected the next president by a one-vote margin. Well, I guess the one that, uh, you know, created uh, most, uh, most uh, waves of uh, disagreement was Bush versus Gore. Yeah. Okay. That comes up all the time, and my usual response is get over it. Justice Antonin Scalia, the conservative lightning rod, voted with the majority in favor of George W. Bush, a case of enduring controversy. My court didn't didn't bring the case into the court. It was brought into the courts by Al Gore. He is the one who wanted courts to decide the question. You know, when, which, when Richard Nixon thought that uh, he had lost the election because of uh, chicanery in Chicago, he chose not to bring it into the courts. But Al Gore wanted the courts to decide it. So the only question in Bush versus Gore was whether uh, the presidency would be decided by the Florida Supreme Court or by the United States Supreme Court. That was the only question, and that's not a hard one. Having exhausted all appeals, Vice President Gore formally bowed out. Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. I offered to meet with him as soon as possible so that we can start to heal the divisions of the campaign and the contest through which we've just passed. The election was close, but tonight after a count, a recount, and yet another manual recount, Secretary Cheney and I are honored and humbled to have won the state of Florida, which gives us the needed electoral votes to win the election. We will therefore undertake the responsibility of preparing to serve as America's next president and vice president. Yeah, I think that shook a lot of people's faith uh, in the court, including people in Washington who followed the court closely and, and believed that it was above politics. Carl Hulse of The New York Times. I had a unique perspective on that whole fight because I happened to be in Florida in Tallahassee election night. I was covering the election from Florida, uh, saw what was going on there, ended up spending the next week there, and then was also at the Supreme Court argument. I think that this just, this bled over, and people forget, because what happened with the Bush administration is 9-11 happened, and uh, things took a different turn, but there was huge bitterness among Democrats following Bush v. Gore 
and in 2001, when uh, Bush took over and started to move to fill up the courts, they Democrats thought these should be uh, Gore judges being put on the court. And I think it colored the fights that were to come over the next few years about appeals court justices. This the Bush v. Gore had a big impact on uh, judicial politics in Washington that people tend to overlook because of what happened later in the Bush administration. I think that was the biggest beacon, at least for me and everybody I talked to, that they are partisans. Leah Ward Sears, former Chief Justice of Georgia, commenting on the U.S. Supreme Court. You would think that the Folks who stopped the Florida recount, which who were the conservatives, would have said it's the state's right to manage their elections. They should manage their elections the way they see fit. That to keep with their philosophy, that's that's where it would be. But they switched to give Bush the election, and they, and they, that in terms of jurisprudence made no sense to me. And well, it made sense in terms of their being, their their uh, being partisans, and I was very, very, very disappointed. And I think the the court suffered because of that, and have has yet to find its footing. It did strike many people as a political decision uh, by the Supreme Court. Robert Barnes, Washington Post Supreme Court correspondent. That is something that lasts. I can tell you. I write a story that talks about this issue, uh, about uh, whether the Supreme Court is seen as a political entity or not. Uh, Every time I write that, there's going to be a comment from someone that says they proved this with Bush v. Gore, and it's never been the same since then. Coming up, we consider the unprecedented refusal by the Senate even to vote on a U.S. Supreme Court nomination and the fierce battle that erupted when Donald Trump selected Brett Kavanaugh for the court. Plus, we'll hear current justices describe efforts they make to get along when Humankind continues in a moment. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.